Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist News Flash with me, Ben Valsler. I'll be bringing you the latest science news along with Chris Smith, Kat Arney and Laura Soule. Coming up, a chemical extracted from fungus could keep our pets free of parasites. It happens to make a chemical called nodulosporic acid. And nodulosporic acid, it turns out, is a neurotoxin for invertebrates, animals without a backbone, so little insects like fleas and like ticks. Understanding why blood rushes to the head during anger could help us to gauge the risk of stroke. Intriguingly, in patients with high blood pressure, this is known as, as hypertension, they didn't see this vasodilation and they didn't find these significant changes in blood flow in the brain. It's only a very small study at the moment, but it's got some really interesting implications because the researchers suggest that this lack of vasodilation in people with high blood pressure could be a risk factor for strokes. And how genetic mutations in the hepatitis B virus could tell us who's most likely to develop liver cancer. Actually, if you look worldwide, it's the fifth most common cancer and it's the third most common cause of cancer deaths. And uh, it's uh, more than eight out of ten cases of this type of cancer are in East Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa and most of these are to do with Hep B infection. Plus, stressed out men take more risks, but stressed women are more risk-averse. And Laura Soul reports from the World Conference of Science Journalists held in Westminster this week. That's all on the way. Now, who here has had fleas? Uh, <laughs> Not personally, uh, no. but my dog certainly has. I did once find one in my flat, but we d- didn't have cats at the time, and I had no idea where it came well, from. Well, fleas will jump onto humans if they get sufficiently desperate, and usually because, obviously, cats and dogs bring them in because they mingle with other animals that have fleas, usually other cats and dogs. And fleas can persist in your carpet for up to years because they can enter a sort of insisted uh, latent state and they can reactivate themselves, come back to life and then jump on you when they sense that a potential victim is around. They're a big problem. They can spread diseases. In the days of the Black Death, of course, they spread Yersinia pestis, and that's bubonic plague. Fleas are a big problem. Also, the numbers of pets that are being kept in the Western world are huge. In America, for example, where there's very good data, we know that there are 70 million dogs in the average homes across America, so very large numbers, and we need good treatments for fleas. So it's quite interesting that uh, a group of researchers who are actually um, based uh, over in America have come up with quite a clever way of solving the problem using a fungus. What they've done is to look at a species of fungus which is called nodulosporium. This is a fungus which lives in the environment. It hangs around on bits of old decaying plant, twigs and stems. So it's not really a generally a, a health risk. It's an environmental pathogen. But it happens to make a chemical called nodulosporic acid. And nodulosporic acid, it turns out, is a neurotoxin for invertebrates, animals without a backbone, so little insects like fleas and like ticks. The way it works is that it blocks up an iron channel, a pore, in the cell's Uh, in nerve cells, which is essential for nerve transmission, nerve cells to talk to each other and to talk to muscles. So, in other words, it paralyses insects if they're exposed to this stuff. But because we and other mammals and other vertebrates don't have this particular channel, we're totally immune to its effects. So what Peter Minke and his colleagues there at Merck Research Laboratories have done is to try to use this chemical to make anti-flea chemicals that can be orally active. In other words, you can feed them to your dog or cat and then they'll pass through the bloodstream and any insects like fleas that prey on the dog by drinking blood will get some of the chemical into them and they'll die. The problem is this nodulosporic acid is extremely complicated as a molecule. If I, well, I would show you the picture, I haven't got it here, but if I showed you the molecule, you'd say, my God, you know, it's like a piece of chicken wire. It's all these interlinked carbon 
atom rings. Very, very difficult to make chemically. So what the researchers have said is, well, we know that sort of structure can have an anti-flea effect. Can we take that structure and add or reduce or remove and tweak a few bits on it to make a molecule which has all the same effects or better, but is much easier for chemists to make because this stuff would be so complicated to make it would be totally uneconomically viable. And what they've been able to do was to come up with a list of initially over 300 compounds they thought they might be able to make, and they whittled it down by doing various tests on fleas and then on mice down to about 14 chemicals, and those 14 they then put through dogs and cats, so they gave them to dogs and cats and then tested by infesting the dogs and cats with fleas and then combing the fleas back out over a series of weeks to see how many of them survived. This chemical, they they got one, one of the compounds was very, very active, N-tert-butyl nodulosporamide, which is one of these derivatives, active up to eight weeks against fleas after one oral dose and doesn't seem to have any toxic effects. And it's much better than the other agents that are on the market that are topical agents. These things you have to spray on um, or whatever. And they don't actually necessarily, some of them, have any action against ticks either. This stuff does. So it's amazing to think you can borrow from biology and use a fungus to combat a flea. Sorry, if it's so difficult to synthesise, then why not just grow a load of this mould and sort of milk it out of the mould, and then you don't need to worry about the complicated molecules? Sure. Uh, I think part of the reason is that that in itself would also be very difficult to do because you've then got to grow the mould, get lots of chemicals, because the mould will, or the the fungus will, secrete a cocktail of chemicals into whatever you grow it in. You've then got to get away from that, just the molecule you want, and cleaning the mixture up will probably also be a difficult process. Much better, therefore, to come up with a chemical that looks like the starting chemical, using that as your clue, produce something that has all the same effects but much easier to make, but it's going to be, therefore, pure, and you know that your dog or cat isn't going to get poisoned by something else coming out of the mould. Because some of these fungi and moulds, of course, remember that the reason that LSD has its, uh, its hallucinogenic effects is that's down to a fungus that makes it. It's ergo, which, uh, which grows on various things like uh, wheat and barley and you can you can extract the LSD and it, and it makes you have a trip so you don't want your dog and cat tripping out if, if this mould <laughs> or fungus makes other things. And also I guess it would be nice if they could actually make it taste of sausages so your dog was more likely to take the... Uh, you could, you could have a, a species specific variety. You could have one that tastes of cats so the dogs would eat it and then one that tastes of fish for the cats to eat. Or, or, or mice for that matter. Or blackbirds knowing what my cats or are Or pigeons. Like. They bring home pigeons. Don't they, they do, they do. Oh. Well and it also turns out that stressed men take more risks but stressed women are more likely to play it safe. And this is according to research published in the journal PLOS One this week. Nicole Lighthall from the University of Southern California Davis School of Gerontology asked volunteers to play a computer game that's designed to measure risk-taking. It's called the Balloon Analog Risk Task. And I thought that today we would do an analogue of the balloon analogue risk task. So I've given you each a balloon. I've got my balloon. Now, obviously, for those of you who are listening carefully, you'll know that Chris is, in fact, a man and Kat is, in fact, a woman. So this hopefully will measure a similar effect to what they were seeing. I've got blue for boys over here. (laughs) Orange for girls. So what what I want each of you to do is take your balloon and blow it up as much as you can. And this is what they tell you in... in, As much as you can. So uh, so, Because this might go bang, right? It might go bang. Well, this is the point of measuring your, your willingness to take a risk. Imagine that I was going to give you some money for every puff you put into that balloon. Okay. And the bigger your balloon is, the more money you're going to get. But of course, if it goes pop... I don't get any money. You lose your so money. So basically, you're challenging me to put as much air in this as I dare. As you dare. Okay, as you're right. willing Let's to risk. Go. So both of you give that a go. So what they did in the real balloon analogue risk task 
<laughs> you're both doing pretty well, is they do the same thing, but on a computer. I'm quite worried about Chris's one here. Chris's balloon is enormous. It's actually bigger than my head. Which is saying much bigger than your head. And Cat's is still a little more tame. Oh, no, ben, I'm feeling faint, actually. <laughs> don't forget, you can cash in at any time. Cat's still going, though. Oh, dearie me. On the computer version, you get five cents <laughs> per click, and a click is a puff of air. Chris has clearly gone lightheaded, so perhaps wouldn't be in the best state of mind for this. But basically, on the computer, it would pop at random somewhere between one breath and 128 <laughs> breaths. So every click you give is increased risk for potentially... Is this a weather balloon you've given me? <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't breathe. It is pretty large, this balloon, Ben. I'd say that Chris's is still a little bit bigger than Cat's, though. That's I a foot yeah. across. That is, that is a big I, balloon. I really don't want to bang it in my face. OK, so you're being a little more risk-averse than Chris, who I think is really okay, pushing I'm it. I'm not going any further than that. that I that's... also do want to see Chris bang a balloon <laughs> in his face. That would be quite funny. That's true. So uh, what they did with this test is uh, effectively a computerised version of that. If you like, we can see that definitely Chris's balloon is far more stretched, far closer to the limit than Cat's. <laughs> But I've never seen anymore. a balloon fly around for that long, actually. Okay, so that was I, okay. I was more, I was less risk averse than cats. Yes, indeed, you were more willing to take the risk. And what they found is generally men and women, actually statistically, when they're not stressed, will take very similar levels of risk. But when you stress them out, then what happens is the risks that men take go up and the risks that women take go down. In fact, when they did this on the computer after stressing them by making them hold their hand in ice cold water for three minutes. They may not sound like it would stress you out, but actually they measured levels of cortisol as well, which is a stress hormone, and they found that yeah. there's definitely an increase in stress hormones when you have to do this. They found that when women were stressed, they would inflate the balloon an average of 32 times, but when men were stressed, they would f pump it an average of 48 times. So this is clearly a, a significant difference between Compared the two. with what when they weren't stressed? Compared with being exactly the same when they weren't stressed, which I think was uh, roughly in the middle as well. It was around about 37. So men equal to women, but you stress the men and they, they put more air in the balloon. And women put Wh less. Why? Well, th they think for a start that this might be analogous to real-life risk-taking. So things like uh, sexy, sexy, risky sexual <laughs> Behaviors, sexy, risky sexual behaviours, of course. Uh, well, some would say sex is a gamble, but, um, <laughs> yeah. but you know, depends who you're doing it with. Financial it? gambling, of course, smoking, driving. illegal drug use. <laughs> risky driving is another good Absolutely. one. And they think there's an evolutionary background to this, because as we evolved, it may have been more beneficial for men to be aggressive in sort of stressful, high arousal, high risk situations. But women, however, would have been better, especially when they had dependent children, to be a little more risk averse. And although there may be slightly less to gain from it, there's also a lot less to lose. So it could have been that men evolved to respond to stress with a sort of fight-or-flight response. In effect, you're fighting by putting as much into the balloon as you can. But women evolved a, a more conservative response, which could be very good to keep dependent offspring safe. Do you think this is relevant to the financial crisis? Because if you take a look on the, say, London Stock Exchange you won't find many women there. It's a very male-dominated environment. And I think John Coates, who we've interviewed on this programme, has made the very point that testosterone is linked to uh, how much money is made on the stock market. The more testosterone a trader has in the morning, the more money he makes by a close of business. 
Well, that's probably the biological mechanism bef- behind what we're seeing here. Cat's very slowly letting her balloon down, <laughs> trying not to make any noise. Which is I thought that she was just her. doing something else, but there we are. <laughs> so it's the balloon, honest. It is the balloon. So, yeah, that's probably the biological mechanism behind what they're seeing here. And it's very true that, of course, the stock exchange is a very stressful experience. So men are probably taking very big risk, which means sometimes very big gains, but sometimes perhaps what we've seen recently, very big losses. Interesting stuff. And now from angry people, uh, stressed people to angry people, I'm going to have to let go of this balloon. There we go. That was the balloon, I swear. Anyway, (laughs) uh, talking about angry people, we often describe angry people as having a sudden rush of blood to the head. But actually now research from scientists in the US, published in the journal Cardiovascular Ultrasound, uh, suggests this week that it might actually be true. Now, this is research by Tasneem Nakfi and Han Hyun, who are using ultrasound to look at blood flow in the brain in response to mental stress, and also how the main artery to the brain, the carotid, responds under these circumstances. Now, they, it's quite a small study. They took 10 healthy young people who were aged 19 to 27. They took 20 older people aged 38 to 60, and then they took 28 people with hypertension, that's high blood pressure. And the researchers set these volunteers a series of tasks designed to cause them mental stress. This doesn't involve freezing cold water, but it involves reading, maths tests, pretty stressful, and remembering situations when they were really angry. And at the same time, they used ultrasound to monitor the effects on blood flow in the brain, blood pressure and heart rate and things like that. Now, what they found is that in healthy volunteers, when you do something called stressful, you think about something stressful or you do a stressful activity with your brain, the blood flow increases to your brain through a process called vasodilation. And this is where the blood vessels get wider to allow more blood blood through. You get more oxygen, more nutrients, all that kind of stuff. But intriguingly, in patients with high blood pressure, this is known as, as hypertension, they didn't see this vasodilation. They didn't find these significant changes in blood flow in the brain. And what do they suggest that might actually mean? Well, it's only a very small study at the moment, but it's got some really interesting implications uh, because the researchers suggest that this lack of vasodilation in people with high blood pressure could be a risk factor for strokes. And it's known that a lack of vasodilation in the heart can lead to an increased risk of something called myocardial ischemia. This is a lack of oxygen in your heart muscle. So it would be really interesting to see if the lack of vasodilation in the brain in people with high blood pressure could actually increase the risk of stroke. That's a lack of blood and a lack of oxygen in certain parts of the brain. Now, the results also do raise an interesting question as to whether this lack of blood flow in the brain in people with hypertension could maybe affect their mental performance um, you know, when, it, when they're faced with stressful tasks or, or things to do. Maybe... Uh, could possibly explain some things like like Alzheimer's or other even cognitive diseases. So, you know, there's some really interesting questions raised by this, but it's still very early work. And as you say, small number of people, bigger group of people would be more informative. But it is very important because obviously strokes brain damage because of impaired blood flow to the brain is a major cause of death and disease worldwide, isn't it? So yeah. very it's important to understand that. Really sort of fascinating inklings that this might be uh, might be at work. Also this week, and this is a lovely little light-hearted story, and we want people to write in, call in, let us know what they think we should do. But electric cars have been accused of being too quiet and therefore posing a risk to people who may be vision impaired. And it's actually prompted the Japanese government to review whether to add a noise-making device to an electric car. So you actually have to make the car noisier. A well, balloon going off. <laughs> a balloon going off would work. But the thing is, of course, hybrid vehicles, when they're not running on the engine, when instead they're running on the batteries, they make very little noise. But they've actually become Japan's top-selling car in recent months. And actually, because a new, cheaper version of the Toyota 
Prius has been on sale since May. It's sold already over 200,000 cars. So really, the, the streets are filling with what could be silent killers. So, uh, so <laughs> the Japanese... Silent might be a little bit inflammatory. Uh, but the Ministry of Transport has launched a panel of scholars. They've got vision-paired groups, consumers, the police involved, and also car manufacturers. And they're dis- deciding how to get around the issue. They haven't yet made a decision on what noise should be made, but they do need to find a way that will raise caution, but not be too offensive for people who, who live near roads, of course. Talking of being offensive, uh, and it's Japan again, I remember a story about five years ago, and there was this guy who invented a toilet that makes simulated flushing noises even when you're not flushing it because lots of people were going into toilets in Japan and because they didn't want the sound of their own bodily functions to be audible to other users in the toilet because that would be impolite, uh, they were perpetually flushing the chains in these toilets and the water consumption was going through the roof, especially in big cities. And so by coming up with what was dubbed the Toilet Queen, I think I wrote about it actually, you might be able to find it on a website, uh, this is a, a handhold, uh, you, you cover a panel on the back of the toilet with your hand it's just a photo cell and that tells the toilet there's someone sitting on the loo and while that hand cover is there uh, it makes flashing noises out of a speaker <laughs> to, so that of course this masks anything going on in your cubicle or perhaps the one next door so that therefore you're spared your blushes by the sounds of flushes I'm, sh- I'm very poetic sure it wouldn't be long before hackers get in there and change that yeah. for completely handles, different sounds handles water music <laughs> well, that could be a useful way to make you go to the loo <laughs> but, but what do you guys think what noises should they make cats suggested balloons perhaps a, a whistle or just something uh, fun the sound of an ice cream no, van that no. would confuse you know, people <laughs> When you were little on your bike, you had those big chunks of paper you shoved in the back wheel to make a sort of noise. Playing cards, yeah. Yeah, I reckon that. That would be perfect, wouldn't it? Well, there you go. Let us know if you think you know what the Japanese government should do about these silent electric cars. (laughs) I don't know, from the sublime uh, to the ridiculous, and now to something very serious, uh, taking the tone down slightly. Um, But that's the uh, the subject of hepatitis. Now, we did cover um, hepatitis in quite some detail in our World Hepatitis Day podcast, which you can find on the website. And this week, there's some interesting new work out about the link between hepatitis B infection and cancer. This is published in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute this week. Now, hepatitis B infection isn't really a big problem here in the West, but it's a massive problem in sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia. And the really bad thing about hep B infection is that chronic hep B infection, which happens in about 20% of people who are infected with the virus, this really increases the risk of liver cancer. It's a type of cancer called hepatocellular carcinoma. Again, this type of liver cancer is really relatively rare in the West. But actually, if you look worldwide, it's the fifth most common cancer and it's the third most common cause of cancer deaths. And uh, it's uh, more than eight out of ten cases of this type of cancer are in East Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, and most of these are to do with hep B infection. Very very common, though, isn't it, hepatitis B? And all those people who've got it don't necessarily go on to get cancer. Absolutely, and that's what this works about, because it is a mystery as to why some people might be more susceptible to developing liver cancer. Obviously, with many things linked to cancer, it's probably in your genes how susceptible you are. But this new study suggests that it might actually be in the genes of the virus, and this is a new analysis from Wen Kao and his team in Shanghai. What did they do? Well, they've done something called a meta-analysis and they looked at over 40 studies, including more than 11,000 people infected with hep B and nearly 3,000 of those who went on to develop liver cancer. And they were looking at whether mutations in the virus itself, in the DNA of the virus, could affect the chances of the carrier of the infection developing cancer or not. Now, there have been quite a lot of studies looking at this, but they've all individually been sort of quite small and not that conclusive. So the hope was by pooling together all the results from these studies um, that Cowan 
on his team were able to discover that four certain mutations in Hep B were actually strongly linked to the development of liver cancer and were also more likely to crop up in the virus as the hepatitis infection progressed from an infection without any symptoms onto causing liver cirrhosis and then ultimately to causing cancer. So I guess where you're going with this is you're saying this is a way of screening for who might be at risk. We spot those people, that tells us they might be going to get a cancer if they've got that particular mutation in their virus, therefore we should look at them more carefully. Absolutely, and because most of these cases are in the developing world and in East Asia, it's not necessarily practical to, say, screen people with ultrasound or, or that kind of thing. But in fact, in these countries, just resources for antiviral treatment are very limited. So you might be able to then say, actually, as a priority, we need to treat this person with antiviral drugs and clear their hepatitis infection, uh, whereas this other person's much less likely to have a serious cancer issue from it. Um, and then also there's an issue, the more people you treat with antiviral drugs, the risk of building up resistance to these drugs. So it's really about stratifying who should get the, the first treatment for hep B infection. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Also, this week has seen the World Conference of Science Journalists. 1,000 science writers and broadcasters from all over the world getting together in Westminster in London to help each other out and share some ideas. Laura Soule tells us more. This week, London played host to the world's biggest conference for science journalists. Science writers and broadcasters from all corners of the globe gathered to discuss the challenges of reporting scientific stories in a media obsessed with celebrity and gossip. Sally Robbins, conference co-director, explained why this year's conference was particularly important. The World Conference of Science Journalists is an international gathering of journalists from around the world so that they can all come together, look at the profession of science journalism, what will happen in the future, how jobs are changing, and to consider scientific issues that are key right across the world. In some parts of the world, particularly in the United States, it does seem to be a profession in crisis. Very few staff positions left in science journalism and on newspapers, lots of newspapers folding all together. By contrast, in other parts of the world, we heard from an Arab science journalist, you know, things are very much on the up there. And in Africa, there's a big increase in the, the profession. So it's uh, quite an interesting contrast. So I think a lot of people are interested to know where things might be going and what the future might hold for them. At first glance, it may seem the challenges for journalists in Africa have little in common with those in the West. But Ake Jimo, from the Development Communications Network in Nigeria, feels that science reporting needs a global perspective. There's a lot of commonalities when it comes to issues around the world. Issues of science is the essence of life. And this is an opportunity to learn what is really going on and how do we address those issues. We think globally, but we have to act locally. That is the essence of the whole thing. As well as facing future challenges, the conference was a chance to celebrate the success of journalists who have shaped the world. Andre Picard of Canada's Globe and Mail helped to expose one of Canada's biggest public health scandals. I wrote about tainted blood a lot. It's a story of blood that was infected with HIV and with hepatitis. And this became a big political scandal in Canada because of government inactions and cover-ups and document shredding related to this. What started out as a medical issue became a big social and political issue for us. What we found was the worst ever health scandal in Canada. About 4,000 people infected with HIV AIDS and more than 10,000 with hepatitis. So very large numbers of people infected through a product that was supposed to save their lives, which is blood and blood products. This year's conference saw delegates invited to London. But the venue for the 2011 conference is somewhat more exotic. 
Cairo. Halab Ghosh, BBC science correspondent and outgoing president of the World Federation of Science Journalists, explained why Egypt was the top choice. Well, we had four really strong bids, Finland, Uganda, Kenya, and a joint bid by the Arab Science Foundation and the American Science Association. It was a difficult choice, but at the end of the day, one of the things that was important to the board was the culture that previous conferences had built, which is about critical, challenging science journalism. The value added that science journalists bring is to ask the awkward questions. We felt the vision provided by the uh, joint US and Arab bid would provide that. As the host of the next conference becomes the president of the World Federation, Palab passed his title on to Nadia Elawadi, who has high hopes for the Cairo conference. We're going to bring people to a different part of the world for this conference. For the past three conferences, it's been in the developed world. This will be a chance to bring people to a completely different part of the world. We're we're going to be representing the Arab world and Africa. We're going to be working closely with other Arab countries and other African countries. We really hope that the journalists, when they come to the country, and then hopefully be able to visit the region afterwards, will find different kinds of stories to cover. They'll also be able to learn how we, as journalists in our part of the world, work, what kind of challenges we face and how we overcome these challenges. Delegates at the World Conference of Science Journalists had a great opportunity to meet people from all over the globe and will return home with fresh ideas to improve science reporting, which will be essential in helping people to face the challenges we will see in the future. That was Laura Soule reporting from the 6th World Conference of Science Journalists in Westminster in London. And that's all we have for this Naked Scientist Newsflash, which featured Chris Smith, Kat Arney and Laura Soule. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed the Newsflash, then do check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we'll bring you some science news, along with interviews, questions and a kitchen science experiment that you can try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientist.com and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.